This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by Zeiss Sports Optics, a leading manufacturer of high-quality birding optics and advocates for young birder programs, including the ABA's own Young Birder Camps. I can tell you from experience, you will never regret treating yourself to a great pair of binoculars, and Zeiss offers great quality at a price point that works for you. Plus, you're helping to support amazing experiences for young birders. That is a win-win. For more information, visit your local Zeiss dealer or go online to zeiss.com sportsoptics. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I am I'm back from the festival circuit. Well, two, two festivals, I suppose that's the bare minimum for a circuit, sort of near each other. But, you know, the birding and the birdering were excellent at both. In fact, you know, it is the, the birdering that makes these things so special, at least in my mind. I saw a lot of friends, I met a lot of people for the first time. Some of those people agreed to help out on the inaugural American Birding Podcast Live. I hope you listened to that. Uh, I'm thinking of uh, Jordan Rudder, David Sibley, plus Eliana Ardila-Ardila of Birding by Best, who has actually been a, a guest before, but this was, this was the first time I'd actually met her in person. So, you know, I hope if you're a regular listener of the podcast, you got to that panel discussion that they were all a part of. They all had really, really interesting things to say about the birding community and the importance of mentorship and how that concept has changed in the last decade or so with the increasing relevance of social media. It was it was a great conversation. Uh, I, was, I was thrilled to be a part of it. I was especially thrilled to be able to pull off that live show, which was you know, something I had sort of wanted to do for a while, but we hadn't really had the opportunity to do it. And the whole thing, whole thing came off in about three to four weeks was this crazy, but maybe the right thing to do, you know, just, just pull that bandaid off. But I did get to add Richard Crosley and David Sibley to my ABA area birder life list, which was, which was pretty sweet. And if you missed that live show and you might be interested in seeing another one, we are actually currently working something up for the lower Rio Grande Valley Birding Festival this November down in Harlingen, Texas. You, you heard it here first. Uh, it's going to be similar, but also different. I, I think it's going to be more fun. I have some big ideas and we have some more time to kind of make those realities. So, you know, maybe make plans to hit that festival this fall if you're interested. Is, is that a selling point? It might be. There's a lot of other reasons to go down there, but this might be one more. Uh, after the biggest week, I shot down to Lexington, Kentucky for the very appropriately named Bluegrass Birding Festival. I got to speak there. I don't often get to do that, so that was a little bit of a neat experience. Uh, the birding is surprisingly good in central Kentucky, and I, I definitely want to thank the Bluegrass Birding Festival folks for having me down, and specifically Evan Farmer, who provided me with a welcome bag featuring local Lexington, Kentucky beers. I do not have a writer or anything. It seems I don't imagine that a lot of bird-speaking people do, but if I did... That would go on it. So it was a nice touch. Uh, thanks for that, Evan. It was a busy month, but a good month for the American Birding Podcast is what I'm saying. So uh, thanks to all of you who enjoy this podcast and talk to me about it. It's a little overwhelming sometimes. And to Ronan O'Fara of uh, Lexington, Kentucky. I am, I'm sorry that I called you a she in some previous episode. That was, that was not intentional. On the show today, Ted Floyd has some thoughts about an extraordinary invasion of Western tanagers in his part of the world. But first, the birding world and the board gaming world have quite a bit in common, 
actually both have sort of benefited from this embrace your geek movement that has caught on in many niche communities in recent years. Uh, leave it to board game designer and birder Elizabeth Hargrave to find an ingenious way to combine these two passions in the game Wingspan. She's with me to talk birding and gaming and community all after this week's Rare Birds. <laughs> This is your Rare Bird Focus for the end of May 2019. I have one really nice ABA area rarity and a bunch of first records to report this time around, and Eastern Canada plays a major role in both of them. Last week, an ABA Code 5 Eurasian oyster catcher was discovered near Lewisport, Newfoundland, which is on the north-central coast of the island. This represents the fifth record of this species in the ABA area, of which three of the previous four also came from Newfoundland, an island with an exceptional reputation for old world shorebirds. The remaining record came from Western Alaska, which also gets its share of Eurasian vagrants. Also in Newfoundland around the same time, a Eurasian golden plover was discovered, a species that is nearly annual in the province in recent years. As for the first records, we'll start with Quebec, which had two southern overshoots in the last couple weeks that both represented firsts for the province. The first one, a one-day wonder burrowing owl in Abitibi in the western part of the province, and the second, a black neck stilt in Baie de Febvre, sorry, I'm really bad at those French-Canadian place names, in the southern part of the province. Notably, this is a species that has been seen as close as a kilometer to the Quebec border in the past, so nice to finally see one on the side that matters to Quebec birders. Other first to report include one for the ABA's home state of Delaware, a Wilson's plover in Kent County, the latest in a mini-eruption of this species up the Atlantic coast this spring. Kentucky also had a late reported first in a brewer's sparrow that showed up at a feeder in Jefferson County. And in Oregon, a fisherman photographed a red-footed booby on a buoy off of Newport for a state first. Notably, this is one of the white morph birds, and all the other records of this species in the Northeast Pacific have been brown morph individuals. I only covered a few of the notable records for the last couple weeks. It was it was a busy couple weeks, lots of second, third, fourth records in addition to these. For all of those, you can check out the ABA blog every Friday morning and join the ABA's Rare Bird Alert Facebook group. That is at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. What do birding and board games have in common? More than you'd expect, actually. And uh, birder and game designer Elizabeth Hargrave has made it a mission to bring those two things together. Her bird-themed game Wingspan was released earlier this year to great reviews. It has been covered by the New York Times, Smithsonian Magazine, and Science Magazine, among others. She's here with me now to talk about it. Uh, welcome, Elizabeth, and congrats on all the great press the game has been getting lately. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. You know, what prompted you to create a board game about birds? I am a birder and also a gamer and mm -hmm. had been, you know, playing sort of hobby board games since about 2005. Um, and a lot of the most popular board games sort of in the modern market have themes that are either like European historical <laughs> trading or farming just things that weren't particularly exciting to me. And I decided <laughs> to try to make a game about something that I was more interested in. Uh, that's cool. Um, so how, how do you, how do you play the game? Can you explain how that works? 
Yeah, so it is card-based game with 170 different bird cards. And in front of you, you have a player mat that has three different habitats on it. And on your turn, you're going to take one action per turn, and um, those actions are each associated with a different habitat. So you might go to your forest to get food or go to your wetlands to get cards, go to the grassland to get eggs. And then as you add birds to those habitats, you get more and more powerful at those actions. So at the beginning of the game, your actions are super simple. You might just be drawing one card. And by the end of the game, you might draw three cards and then go through that row and activate each one of your birds in that row that each might have a power where the raptors might be going hunting and looking at the top card of the deck to see if they can eat it for a point. And, you know, other birds might be doing other things. Um, so it has a real build to it as you go along in the game. And then the, you get points for your birds and points for a bunch of the things that you do during the game. You're competing against other people for um, who has the most of, you know, eggs in a certain habitat or birds in a certain place, those kinds of things. Um, and you count up who has the points at the end of the game. Oh, cool. Um, so how did you choose the birds that you, were, that you used? That is a good question. So the, the base game of Wingspan is all North American birds. We're going to do expansions that add decks for different continents. Oh, cool. And picking the top North American birds was hard. <laughs> One of the things that I did was I pulled data from eBird because I wanted right. to make sure that I, the, the, the mix of birds would look familiar to people from North yeah. America, no matter where they live. So I was sort of looking at different states and what were the most common birds there. Um, so a lot of them will, are quite common birds, but I also did include like rare or endangered birds, um, which have their own special things that they do in the game. And then it was also a matter of trying to sort of balance out so that I had a similar number of birds that could be played into each habitat. All right. And yeah. that had each their, <laughs> their nest types in the game. So like, I wanted an equal number of cavity nesters and platform nesters and birds that build bull nests and ground nests, which is not necessarily true to nature that those are evenly distributed right. types of nests, but it works very well in the game that way. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Certain concessions that you have to make. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a lot of pushing and pulling on, like, trying to stay true to nature in the sense of, like, the, yeah. the characteristics of each bird card are true to life, and then figuring out um, the right mix to make it actually work as a game. Yeah. Did you have, a, was it a priority for you to sort of teach people about birds a little bit? Because, you know, you can just throw all the real common stuff in there, but you kind of right. want to put in something a little bit unusual that might pique someone's interest about, you know, at a bird that they may not have heard of before. Was that, was that something that you were kind of thinking of? Um, a little bit. And I mean, I think in the gaming world, just the idea of learning about birds at all is very new to a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, it's true. So, you know, they're doing well to be learning the Cardinal and the Blue Jay even sometimes. You know? <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. But yeah, it's fun. I think even for experienced birders, there will be some birds in the deck that are things that you don't see every day. So that's fun. And even just, you know, East yeah. Coast versus West Coast, there's a lot of stuff in there that that might be new to yeah. folks. So. 
That's nice, kind of heading off that uh, that charge of East Coast bias. I know that's something <laughs> that you're a lot. I live on the East, and sometimes, you know, there's a ton of West Coast birders and a lot of cool birds, and, you know, it's perhaps justifiably, they don't always feel like they get uh, the fair shake, so that's yeah, nice. Yeah, <laughs> I definitely had to fight that, because the birds, I live outside of Washington, D.C., and those are the yeah. birds that I know, and um, it, it helped a little that I, I went out to um, Southern California a couple of years back while I was working on the game. I was like, okay, oh, cool. this is what it feels like out here. This is the mix, you know? Yeah. Because it, it really is a totally different mix of birds. Oh, totally, yeah. So, so one of the more exciting aspects of the game is really how accurate it is. Um, not just the artwork, which is really beautiful, but there's clearly a real effort made to you know give it a lot of what you know what the media is called you know, scientific integrity. Yeah. Um, was that was that a real priority for you? It was. I mean, it would have been a lot easier if I was doing something you know fantasy based. I could have just made up <laughs> right. What, uh, that's like, the advantage of that. Yeah. Just went on the cards to, yeah. to make everything just balance out perfectly, and yeah. um, so it was definitely a constraint I had, I placed on myself that made it harder to design the game and to put the deck together. Um, but it would just be weird to me to like not <laughs> have yeah. it be correct. If I'm get if I'm gonna have it be actual birds, then the stuff cards needs to be the right stuff. Yeah, oh, I'm sure I messed up on some of them, but well, <laughs> I mean, yeah, as long as it's mostly right, I think <laughs> just in the interest of having you know a cool game that you know appeals to birders and stuff is is definitely something you're willing to let that slide maybe a little bit too. Right. Um, it, you know, in the New York Times article, I you know, was struck by a quote from the president of Stonemeyer Games, is the the company that puts out the puts out the game. He stated that one of the appealing things about the game was the, you know, the satisfying feeling of collecting beautiful things. And I thought, yeah, wow, that's actually a pretty good summation of one of the appeals of birding itself. Um, yes. Was that sort of an intentional aspect or did that just sort of come along naturally just because you're interested in birds and that's something that, you know, interests you? I mean, I don't think I had really connected it to like the, the fact that that is a very similar feeling to like mm -hmm. keeping a bird list. <laughs> yeah, totally. Although that is kind of what you're doing in the game in a sense, right? So, so yeah, maybe not so intentionally, but that <laughs> when I started working on the game, it had a whole element that you um, were doing a bunch of things that were actually building up the preserve. So you had to do something to mm -hmm. make your wetland better before you could get right, the birds okay. in the wetland. And over time, I just realized like people were so engaged with the birds. I just wanted to make it like all of your interactions are around doing things specifically with doing the birds. Bird so. Oh, that, that brings up an interesting question. Like, how do you workshop a game like that? Like you, it's, it's one thing to come up with a game. It's another thing to come up with a game that people are going to really enjoy playing. And sometimes if you can get in your head right. and maybe you're not really thinking about that aspect of it, how, how do you how do you figure that part out? Right. So most all published games go through usually a pretty rigorous process of playtesting here in the D.C. area. Um, I have access to a bunch of different groups that do this. So there's one that meets oh, cool. um, in at a board game cafe once a month. <laughs> designers that come bring their games. There's a couple that I know of at, at different people's houses that just designers get together and play test each other's games. There are conventions you can go to where the public comes and just play tests games oh, all cool. weekend, which is yeah. an amazing resource to just run to. Yeah, they say um, a lot of people use as sort of a rule of thumb for your first game. You want to play test it at least 100 times before you yeah. even consider pitching it to a publisher. Wow. <laughs> you got to work out all those all those kinks. Yeah. Yeah. 
things sometimes, you know, when you first have an idea, it seems like something should work. And then when it hits the table, you realize there's just this fundamental flaw in some way. And there's a lot of tweaking and, and sort of sussing out what, what appeals to people, what's sort of the core thing that's engaging them that you really want to double down on. What can mm-hmm. you let go of? Yeah, it can be a long process. And I think because this was my first game, maybe it took me longer than it yeah. does for some more experienced designers. But if you've played a lot of games, you also sort of have a sense of like, okay, this is what it's like when it's really a good publishable game. Yeah, and you yeah. can feel what like you're not there yeah. yet, right? And so you just keep tweaking and and coming back and trying again. And, and it's a very iterative process. Yeah. So I mean, it seems like the last decade has been a real golden age for board games. I mean, especially those that are sort of complex, uh, you know, those engine building games. Um, yeah. For people who aren't board gamers, can you explain what that what that means, what that concept is? Engine building is a concept within games and not all modern board games have it, but it's considered sort of a genre or mm-hmm. a, a thing within a lot of them that people enjoy, which is when each turn you are maybe purchasing things or um, adding things to your own set of abilities within the game so that your next turn gets a little better and then you add more stuff and your next turn mm-hmm. you're a little bit more powerful and you add more stuff and your next turn is a little bit more powerful. So you have this nice arc over the course of the game. In sort of more traditional games, sometimes people say Monopoly is a little bit of an engine builder, right? Because you're buying a bunch of stuff over the course of the game, and that's making you get richer and richer. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of modern board games that sort of take that to a whole nother level. As opposed to if you think with of within sort of the the games we played as a kids, like sorry, mm-hmm. the turn you take on turn one and the turn you take at the end That's of the game the is exactly yeah. the same structure. You're not any better at rolling your what is it one or two <laughs> dice yeah. and yeah. moving than you were on turn one. Um, okay. So if you've played a lot of games that have more of that progression something like sorry where your your turns are all exactly the same can feel very flat to people mm-hmm. and it's one of the the things that i think a lot of people get excited in in more modern board games sort of mm-hmm. that feeling of of really getting to build something and get yeah, better like laying a foundation and then kind of mm-hmm. going off on that so that, i mean there's a lot of these games out there you know strong community of game players what, what do you think has contributed to this trend that's a really good question there's a lot of people that have a lot of different theories about it and i don't mm-hmm. think it's it's really something that anyone's studied very academically um but uh, you know, there are people that make the argument sort of that as we are more and more online, mm-hmm. it, the contrast then of putting away your phone and playing an interactive face to face game um, feels even better. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's also there's there isn't actually a ton of money in the sort of modern hobby board game um, world. So the, you know, comp- the board game companies don't have huge advertising budgets. So it's something that's growing slowly by word of mouth more than by, um, mass marketing. Yeah. Um, which means there's a lot of room for it to grow. Right. And it's yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of building, um, building more organically as people reach out and, and share games with their friends. Yeah. I mean, I remember the first time I heard about you know, Settlers of Catan, which is sort of like the classic 
you know engine building game these days and um yeah now i have you know friends that play it a lot so right. yeah it's, to it's totally that that you know organic thing that's that's building up it's sort of neat um so you're both a birder and a board gamer um what similarities do you see between those two communities i mean it's funny because i think there is a, a there's like this little venn diagram right of where the, <laughs> the two worlds do overlap and uh, i don't know i think in both board games and birding for me personally i think the thing that i get out of them is this feeling one of the things that I get out of them is this feeling that I'm constantly able to learn more. Yeah. So with birding, like every year I get confident about more bird songs. I feel like I don't have to start from scratch every mm -hmm. spring migration season with my warbler songs. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Learning a little <laughs> bit more every year. And um, I think board games for a lot of people have that same feeling of like, I, I learn as I play this game, maybe it's not necessarily knowledge that's useful in the world, but I feel like <laughs> I got better at something. And I, I yeah. if I play the game again, I'll be better at it the next time that I play it. And that's a, a nice feeling to a lot of people. Um, some people really get into the collecting aspect of both hobbies, right? Yeah, totally. Like bird yeah. list, collecting your big game shelf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it's been really fun with Wingspan to discover those people that are in both worlds at a, at once. It really reminds me of what's the adage of like you can't please everyone with a product, but if you find you find like, that niche, yeah. <laughs> people that you've made the ideal thing that like oh, totally. there are people whose brains just exploded of like you've combined my two favorite things in the world. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's been really fun to see. You know, the feeling of finding your people sort of online and then kind of going offline to do something fun. And it feels like birding and board gaming have kind of a, a similar you know aspect for that as well, yeah, because yeah, birding is very, I don't know, offline involved in the natural right. world. But you're finding all these cool people who are interested in that through social media and things like that. You're, you're kind of finding your your world. It's easier to do that now. And, and it's sort of see a, a similarity that way as well. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're working on another game about butterflies. Um, do you find a lot of inspiration in the natural world? I do. I'm just a big nature geek. So those are like <laughs> the themes that, that occur to me that I'm like, oh, how could that work as a game? And also because it's like it's still fairly unusual in the world of board games to have yeah. those themes. And I'm like, oh, that's never been done before. I could mm -hmm. totally do something about that. Yeah. So, yeah, it, 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 it's just where my brain goes. It's not something that I'm necessarily like, oh, I'm only going to do games about nature. In fact, I have one now that's about stunt people. That's also like, how has no one made a game about stunt people? <laughs> yeah, that's cool. <laughs> how do you how are you kind of marketing this game? Do you are you seeking out birding groups and birding, you know, I don't know, clubs and and hosting a game night or whatever with them trying to get them uh interested in the game because i feel like you know there's there's board game people in this you, you talked about the venn diagram there's people outside of that you know do you think you could pull some right. more people into that overlapping area uh with this game yeah i think that's already happening it's sold out very quickly and so i haven't I been that. like yeah, really pushing right now because it's uh -huh. not going to be available again for I th there's another shipment coming in sometime mid-April, um, but I think a lot of those copies are going to get sucked up by people who have already gotten on wait lists at their local game oh, stores. Oh, right, right, right. That's got to be really satisfying. Yeah, it's kind of awesome. <laughs> and then in May, there's yeah. a big bunch of games coming, I think late May. 
if I'm remembering correctly. Oh. It's, I am so grateful not to it's have to worry timing. about any of the production and marketing, like the, the yeah, yeah, yeah. manufacturer, the publisher's really taking care of all of that. Oh, that's cool. So I think maybe around the time that it's actually likely that people can get a copy at a local store, <laughs> then I might go out and do some more events. Um, yeah. By the time this podcast goes yeah. live, uh, will be about May. So Perfect. yeah, so maybe there'll be some Perfect. out there. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, in, in most areas, there is what we like to lovingly call a friendly local game store. <laughs> yeah. That will probably have wingspan and you can call ahead of time and get on a wait list usually for a game if it's something that you're particularly interested in, which has been part of what has made wingspan so hard to find is that people know that that's possible and then like suck up all mm -hmm. of the available copies as soon as, as yeah. the stores get them. So if 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 somebody really wants that one, it's it's probably a good idea to get on that wait list. <laughs> yeah. Has it has it been overwhelming? Like oh, the, all great. the interest? I mean, the New York Times piece and the Smithsonian yeah. piece and all that stuff. That's got to be crazy. I don't usually see stuff like that about board games or burning. It's right. like crazy that it's managed to manage to split the difference and, and go kind of I don't know, you know viral. But uh, certainly there's a lot of interest. Yeah, It's been far beyond anything I could have imagined. I mean, there's so many good games that come out that just fly under the radar for one reason or another and yeah. I've never quite hit that critical momentum and um so you know i knew with stillmeyer games they've got very popular games and a great sort of marketing yeah. Yeah. strategy and and a lot of fans that are just loyal to that company so i knew that because of That's that cool. yeah. that we'd sell a certain number of copies but for it to sort of break out of that world was I hoped it would have a little bit of crossover, but this has just been amazing. Yeah. So what would you say to someone who is a birder, but not necessarily a board gamer um, about giving this game a try? Like, what would you what would be your sort of motivational speech for them? I would always go birding on a beautiful day before this, but there's lots of, of rainy days when you yeah. <laughs> yeah, scratch good. that yeah. itch. And it's just the art is beautiful, which we haven't talked it about, is. which it is, is no fault of yeah. mine. But um, the publisher found some amazing artists. And each, so it's 170 unique cards with their own illustrations. And each one has a fun little fact about the bird. And I really did when I could try to to come up with actions for the birds to take in the game that sort of resonate with what they do in real life. So there's a brown headed cow bird that lays eggs <laughs> in the bird's nests and uh, like I, I talked a little bit about the raptors going hunting and other little things like mm -hmm. that where I, I, I tried to really make it feel like it would resonate. If you know about the birds, it'll resonate with something that you know about the birds. If you don't know about That's the birds, cool. you can still play it. It's it's not a game where like it rewards any actual knowledge, but... Mm -hmm. My hope was that people might sort of accidentally learn things as they play. Right, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Without feeling like they're being preached at. I would say if you've never played a modern hobby board game, if you can find someone to teach you the game, it'll be easier than learning it from scratch. That is always true um, for mm -hmm. any game. Yeah. Um, but it does... I tried to make it so that the first few turns are really quite simple and easy to pick up. And then once you've sort of gotten into that rhythm, it, it, it builds from there. Um, so it shouldn't be too intimidating. All right. So Elizabeth Hargrave is a board game designer and birder. Her new game, Wingspan, combines birding and gaming in a really clever way. It is out there, as she said. Uh, you may have to work a little bit to find it right now, but it'll be out there again soon. Um, snap one up if you see it. Uh, thanks so much, Elizabeth, and, and congrats again on all the success. Thanks for having me.
Across a large swath of our ABA area, it has been a remarkable spring for seeing western tanagers. These radiant birds have been showing up all across the western Great Lakes region where they don't ordinarily occur. Birders at oases in the desert southwest have been reporting migrants in numbers considerably in excess of normal. And here in the Rocky Mountain region, where I live and where the western tanager is usually fairly common in spring, the species has been fantastically, ridiculously, off the charts abundant. The reasons for this will be explored in detail in the months to come in regional ornithological publications and in the quarterly journal North American Birds, published by the American Birding Association. I'm looking forward to seeing the analysis, but that's not what I'm about right now. No, I want to spend a bit of time reflecting on the human dimension of the Great Western Tanager Fallout of 2019. The date was Sunday, May 19th. We'd had a nice run of days with clear skies and warm temperatures, but everything had changed overnight. The temperature was in the mid-30s, a very fine mist was falling, and the cloud ceiling was lowering during the course of our bird walk. Toward the end of the morning's ramble, we came upon a commotion of birds and humans. The birds were western tanagers, the humans were ordinary townsfolk. The city of Lafayette, Colorado, where the birdwalk was held, has recently done something utterly simple and profoundly effective. It's put out bird feeders in as prominent a place as possible, at the entrance to Greenlee Wildlife Refuge, a heavily visited postage stamp preserve in the city. The attraction this morning was the plastic bowl filled with cranberry chutney, attractive to the eight or nine tanagers in the immediate vicinity, and powerfully attractive to the tanagers' human admirers. The adult male western tanager in spring is refulgent, especially on dreary mornings with dense cloud cover. The bird looks like it could burst into flames. We joke that you should never stare directly at a male tanager lest you incur permanent retinal damage. Whether you're seeing a western tanager for the 500th time in your life, as was the case for several of us on the birdwalk, or whether you're seeing the species for the very first time, you are stopped in your tracks. Everything else in this life, getting back to work, heading off to church, driving the kids to soccer, can wait. Suffice it to say, our birdwalk didn't end on time. I went back that evening and right away I could tell the tanagers were still there. The reason I knew is because of the humans. A group of folks with smartphones were stationed at the feeder, alternately gawking at the tanagers and scrolling and tapping at their screens. I had a pretty good idea as to what was on their minds. Western tanagers, I said. Those birds are called western tanagers. The gawkers had pretty much figured out the ID without my input, but the confirmatory word was appreciated. They were very pleased. And so am I. Maybe one of them would go back home and start feeding tanagers. Maybe another will participate in next week's free bird walk offered by the city. And who knows, maybe one of them will someday become a major figure in birding or ornithology. They were all pretty young. If ever there was a spark bird, the western tanager is as good a candidate as any. The weather continued atrocious for the next few days, highlighted by a tree-breaking, fence-crashing, epic spring snowstorm on Tuesday of that week. And so did the tanagers. The tanagers continued at the chutney feeder. Word had gotten out through Nextdoor and other social networking services. Even with the historically bad weather, people kept coming to see the tanagers. I want to mention in passing two other things. They're interrelated. 
The first is that there were many additional birds, including quote-unquote good birds like clay-colored sparrows at the preserve that week. The clay-colored sparrow is a birder's bird, small and obscure, clad in grays and browns, tricky to identify. I personally delight in seeing clay-colored sparrows. Hang on to that thought for a moment. The second thing is something Ken Kaufman said in an interview in Birding Magazine in 2007. The question was about how the efforts of serious birders can sometimes harm the cause of birding. Here's how Kaufman responded. I should start by saying that birders in general are incredibly welcoming and helpful to newcomers, but sometimes our best intentions misfire. We'll take a group of beginners out and we'll be obsessed with showing them something good when they'd be thrilled with a good look at a flicker or a jay or a beautiful red-winged blackbird. We pass those by as unimportant and finally get the people zeroed in on a clay-colored sparrow or something, and they're thinking, huh? And then they don't go on a second field trip. It's funny, I can tell you all about clay-colored sparrows. I've analyzed their flight calls. I've pondered the matter of their status and distribution. I can tell you how they differ from the look-alike Taverneri subspecies of the Brewer Sparrow. But it hasn't always been that way. I started out with flickers and jays and beautiful red-winged blackbirds. And I have a confession. In my earliest days, I just bypassed the sparrows altogether. I figured there'd be plenty of time to get around to them at some later point in my life. I was right about that, was I ever. The tanagers have moved on, but our memories of them are still with us. I'm glad we humans spent some time together staring in slack-jawed amazement at those feathered fireballs. I'm grateful to Ken Kaufman for his wise counsel in the matter, and it's gratifying that the city is carrying on with its Lafayette Birds initiative. Most of all, I'm thankful for tanagers, and for the spirit of human receptivity that has to be one of the greatest things about our own species. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast and the many other free resources that the ABA provides the birding community, the best way to support them is to join the ABA. Members have access to our great magazine, discounts to our partners like Beauty Books, and the opportunity to take part in ABA events and adventures around the world. You're also helping to support our great conservation initiatives like Birders Exchange and our Young Birder programs. It is a great way to help us spread the joy of birding throughout the Americas and beyond. You're actually doing a lot by joining the ABA. You can get more information at aba.org slash join or learn about our e-memberships at aba.org slash e-member. Special shout out to Stephen Matadobra of Alexandria, Virginia, Elizabeth Trott of Carborough, North Carolina, Jared Boosen, uh, who was stationed somewhere in the Pacific, uh, Leighton Register of Lexington, Kentucky, Megan Kulin-Schmidt of Mahomet, Illinois, Elizabeth Howard of San Marcos, California, Christopher Daly of Piscataway, New Jersey, Jordan English of Encinitas, California, Tiffany Farrell of La Plata, Maryland, Leah Beckman of St. Paul, Minnesota, and Sarah Hine of Placentia, California, all of whom joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you to you all and welcome to the ABA. 
I, I have one more thing to ask you to do in the show notes or on the ABA blog. There is a link to a listener survey. We want your thoughts about the American Birding Podcast. You can you can be as specific or as vague as you like. We're not asking for your name or your email on this questionnaire. It is completely anonymous unless you don't want it to be for whatever reason. But if you send me an email at podcast at ABA.org after filling it out, we might be able to enter you in a drawing for a little something from us. Uh, thanks for your help. Executive producer of the American Birding Podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He suggests a birder version of Pictionary, except that every turn ends the same way when your teammates refuse to accept the drawing as proof and demand photos. Technical production is from John Lowry. He has an idea for Trivial Pursuit, in which you answer questions about feeder birds to fill up the pot on the stove with ingredients, except four of the pies are lard and one is black oil sunflower seeds, and the last one is hot pepper flakes to keep the squirrels off. So there's really maybe not that much of a variety. Additional help comes from Greg Neese and David Hartley. They're workshopping a version of Taboo in which you have to describe pictures of subadult goals without using the words bear parts, featherware, remiges, or hybrid swarm. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, or on Twitter at ABA. We're working on a birder version of Clue, right? So where you have to figure out which bird killed the ABA area rarity. Uh, spoiler alert, though, it's, it's always the peregrine falcon with the bell notch in the parking lot. Questions and comments can come from me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nate Swake. Thanks for listening. Till next time.